There's no pill for misinformation. And the only way to counter it, and it's becoming increasingly a problem uh, with the spread of the internet, is to have accurate information in a palatable form. So if I told your audience that they could dial into a website and listen to uh, an esteemed PhD give a lecture about which methods of contraception work most effectively, you'd probably have zero uptake. <laughs> but if people are talking to their neighbor and the neighbor starts telling them a story, they might listen. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Bill Ryerson. Bill trained as an ecologist before discovering the population problem and then switched his career to essentially activism. He joins me today to discuss the work of the Population Media Centre, an initiative he founded which creates mainstream entertainment in developing countries all around the world, which create discussion around cultural norms and drive behavioural change. The Population Media Centre produces telenovelas and radio novellas dealing with population and with the cultural trends that drive high fertility rates in developing nations despite rampant inequality and poverty. The initiative has seen huge successes. Population rates have declined in countries where they have broadcast these very popular shows. They've branched into video games which tackle gender violence and they've received an overwhelmingly positive response from those populations many of whom are receiving really pertinent information on contraception and even the law for the first time through the vehicle of these entertainment shows. Bill and I spend the first half of the episode talking about the population problem, the policy problems, the history of population growth, and he introduces the concept of the demographic dividend, which showed that small families actually lead to economic growth. In the second half of the episode, we then discuss the Population Media Centre and the amazing successes that it has seen, with Bill sharing truly amazing stats and heartwarming stories. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. So you were just telling me the story of you leaving academia. Yeah, so I was studying uh, ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale University as a graduate student and doing research on insect feeding behavior and plant defense mechanisms. And uh, the biology department on the forestry school had a series of lectures on the environmental crisis. And uh, my advisor, Charles Remington, did his summer research on butterflies and moths at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab, as did another lepidopterist, 
uh, butterfly and moth expert named Paul Ehrlich, who in 1968 published The Population Bomb. And um, so Remington invited him to give one of these environmental crisis lectures at Yale. And I read the book, attended his lecture, had dinner with him that night at Remington's house. That weekend, the two of them founded zero population growth, along with the help of an attorney. And that's still existing. It's now called Population Connection. But uh, I started the fourth chapter in the country the following year in 1969. And we were lobbying in Hartford for sex education and contraceptive availability for people who were not married. And I decided activism, particularly on population-related issues, was more important than understanding how plants evolved defense mechanisms against insects, although people raising crops might disagree. But nevertheless, <laughs> I left Yale and went to work at the Population Institute and have spent now over 50 years working full-time on population and reproductive health issues. Do you remember what was... Um, what stood out to you in that book or in that evening, in that lecture that made you go, oh, no, this is this is the issue I want to work on? Well, of course, this was the late 60s, and it was when the U.S. was forming the environmental defense, not um, the, what's it called, Environmental Protection Agency. And uh, UNFPA had just been formed in 1967. So there was a lot of concern about population and environmental sustainability and there were all kinds of concerns about pollution. Uh, the Cuyahoga River had caught on fire because of all of the stuff that was, you know, pollutants that were floating in it. And people said, wow, we're really living in precarious times. And when Paul's book came out, it made me realize that we were facing something that was not, you know, okay, pollution might shorten your lifespan by a year. We were facing something that could lead to a catastrophic crash in the population. And in fact, uh, the following, uh, following the lecture, I took a population biology course, a vertebrate population biology course, and I had to write a term paper about some vertebrate. So I said, well, humans are vertebrates, I'll do it on them. And I taught myself demography with the help of Lincoln and Alice Day, who were at Yale at the time, and demographers who had written the book, Too Many Americans, and did this paper, which instead of the 15 pages requested was 115 pages, and which looked at not only the unsustainability of adding 80 billion, 80, sorry, 80 million people a year to the planet, the equivalent of a new Egypt every year, but um, looked at the uh, effects on health and particularly the effects on economic welfare. And when I realized that, in fact, large family size was the primary factor miring uh, many African, Asian, and Latin American countries in poverty, while all of the countries that had moved from developing to developed status since World War II uh, had started with family planning and smaller family norms, and that that led to something called the demographic dividend, uh, that made me realize this is not only critical for the issue of sustainability and the environmental level, but critical for 
human rights and human, human economic welfare. And so now looking at the demographic dividend, for example, all the Asian tigers, when they brought down fertility rate with no change in family income, uh, what they observed was people were raising two children instead of six, and suddenly they had money left over at the end of the month. And what did they do with that money? One was they put it into savings, and uh, they, um, they were able to save money for things like uh, education, which increased economic productivity. The money they put in the banks led to capital formation that allowed businesses to borrow and expand. And that led to ability of companies uh, to hire more workers as they expanded. That led to rising wages and creation of middle class. And the government had rising incomes they could tax, and that was used to build infrastructure like roads and schools and municipal services, all of which increased economic productivity. So when you look at all the Asian tigers, look before that at Europe, look at all of the countries that have gone from developing to developed status since World War II, they all went through this process that's summarized by the term demographic dividend. And even today, there are people who have never taken a population biology course named economists who think we need more people because they will become consumers. But in fact, in places like Nigeria, more and more people buying fewer and fewer products because of their poverty is not solving anything. It's just making life much more miserable and leading to immense human suffering. So... So, right. so just just to pause here. So you're saying that after World War II, um, their economic growth was actually tied to small planet, small family planning systems. That's small family size. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So in fact, various countries started from like Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Bahamas, Barbados started, and since then Tunisia. Uh, started modeling small family norms and promoting family planning use. And that led to the demographic dividend and their economic takeoff. And people lived better lives. They lived healthier lives. Of course, trying to bear fewer children led to much improved maternal health and child health. So I, what I realized as an ecologist is this is more than just the possibility of the ecological system collapsing. This is Addressing this issue is a way to improve the human rights and human welfare of the entire world. What, what about the fact, though, that at the moment um, there is a correlation between GDP and energy use? So increasing economic growth is going to increase energy output, and that's going to have an overall uh, negative impact on the planet as we're trying to decrease our carbon emissions. Correct. So, so right. So how does then... How do we implement a demographic dividend that improves people's well-being right now, but doesn't go down the exact same path as 100 years ago, where that was also seeing a vast increase in consumption, which has a huge ecological footprint? Uh, I think there may be a way to do this. Obviously, the issue is concerning because if everybody says, I want to live like uh, British or American citizens and drive the same kinds of automobiles, and same refrigerators and so on, we can't do it. 
we don't have the resources um, to make that possible. We don't have the absorptive ability of the climate to handle all of that additional carbon dioxide. But I do think it's fair to say that ethically, people in Ethiopia deserve to live better lifestyles, that, that we should not say, well, you need to remain poor so we can continue to drive cars in the West. Um, we need to figure out a way within resource limitations to have people who are at the bottom 50% live better. Now, that may imply that people at the top 50% and particularly the top 1% have to live simpler lives in order to have the balance sheet balance. But um, it's not not reasonable to say people shouldn't develop economically when they're living on 50 cents a day or a dollar a day. Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we definitely need to see living standards raised around the world. It is abhorrent uh, that some people have lifestyles of such luxury when others literally don't have access to to clean water, given the amount of wealth in the world. I suppose I'm just interested in that, like the fact that they're there's this demographic dividend which increases economic uh, growth and the fact that emissions and growth st as yet still cannot be decoupled. I'm just curious as to how that fits into the, the bigger picture of trying to decrease global emissions. I mean, is it that if we saw economic growth in developing nations that don't have sort of existing fossil fuel structure and could skip immediately to cleaner energy would that have a positive impact? Could you just sort of, yeah, lay so, out the different mechanisms moving here? Yes, I think the answer to decoupling is we need to move immediately to renewable resource use. Um, the best study I've seen, and there need to be more of these studies, is the work of David Pimentel, who is an ecologist at Cornell University, who asked himself the question, what number of people on the planet can be sustained with renewable resources. And obviously non-renewable resources like coal, oil, and gas, and lots of metals and minerals are being depleted as they're used. So that's why they're non-renewable and they're becoming more difficult to reach and more expensive and more environmentally risky to reach them as we consume what's there. So sooner or later, and similar is better in terms of the climate, we need to move to 100% renewables. And what his answer was, first of all, depended on the quality of life that people had. So he looked at different lifestyles and ended up saying, let me try the Western European lifestyle uh, to see how many people could be sustained at that level. And it was 2 billion. If we were to go to the Ethiopian lifestyle, it would be more. Well, at any rate, 2 billion is one-fourth of the current population. We passed 8 billion seven months ago, and uh, mm -hmm. since that time, the world's added the equivalent of the population of Kenya, where I am at the moment, uh, mm -hmm. in net growth. So, you know, we're, we're far from achieving zero population growth, and yet whether we can decouple our energy and other systems from non-renewables quickly enough, I do not know, but we must uh, if we're going to survive this century because 
if we continue with the current mode of operation, namely coal, oil, and gas, uh, the planet is not likely to be habitable 100 years from now, uh, or if it is only for a few. And so, um, in fact, uh, beyond the climate issue, there's another issue affecting habitability, and that is expanding human footprint, namely expanding human farming and expanding human habitation are the primary causes of the loss of biodiversity that makes the planet habitable. So if you and I were to visit the planet 3 billion years ago, we probably would not have survived one minute because you couldn't drink the water, they couldn't breathe the air, there was no food to eat, uh, the world was toxic to uh, any type of advanced life including humans. And it's only the 3 billion years of gradual evolution of the web of life that makes the planet habitable. And we are systematically destroying it as humanity expands into rainforest after rainforest to grow soybean and to build housing developments and, and super highways like the one I just was on coming from the Nairobi airport into Nairobi. That's been built since the last time I was here three and a half years ago. So. Clearly, this growth cannot continue. And the question of how uh, high on the economic welfare people, welfare um, spectrum, people will be able to achieve in countries like Kenya and Ethiopia when their population stops growing is a little unknowable because there are a lot of issues that you just raised of how do we get off of the current treadmill and onto something that is uh, sustainable. And certainly, you know, what I know is I have not paid an electric bill in over a year at home uh, because we invested in solar panels. And uh, so I never see an electric bill and that's very nice. And, you know, it's possible to generate electricity using solar panels less expensively than it is burning oil or something else that some power plants still do. Um, and it's a lot safer um, for the next 20,000 years than nuclear. So, no, I know um, there are steps we can take to rapidly decouple uh, the system from non-renewables, but whether we can achieve that uh, in time to have everybody live like kings and queens, I do not know. I think we're we're probably at a point, particularly with climate change, that we won't see uh, European lifestyle spread throughout the world. Yeah, there's some degrowth researchers who are pretty quick to say that um, sort of banking on decoupling being possible in the future is a is a massive risk. Um, which is why we need to be looking at this like contraction okay. and then redistribution uh, mechanism. Yeah. Tell me also, let's start, before we go back into exactly the, the population question, tell me a little bit about the political influence um, on sort of the countries that you're working in on the quote unquote third world or the majority world is the term that I prefer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody prefers. Um, because it would seem to me that... Um, it wouldn't have just been smaller family sizes that improved economic output and well-being, but also the fact that sort of the global world order was allowing 
certain nations to do that. And what we have seen is like certain, you know, the work of Fidel Kaboub uh, focuses on how places like, you know, the continent of Africa are sort of forced into participating in the global market through low value added manufacturing, which means that they will never be able to bring enough investment into their own countries in order to, to raise the standard of living there. So they're sort of trapped on a hamster wheel on the treadmill on which sort of the rest of the world is trapped. So what would be, I mean, is that still the same? Are there still these sort of political exertions? I'm also thinking of the the common agricultural policy, which is sort of, you know, massively hindered um, the fruitfulness of Africa's food market um, to allow it to become an economic power as well. These policies that kind of hobble um, other resource-rich nations. Um, has, have they also stood in the way from this economic well-being and perhaps forcing these cultures into having more children in order to have more people to bring income into families? The simple answer is yes. <laughs> uh, they, the more complex answer is it's a combination of things, uh, one of which is corruption. And it's hard to combat corruption when somebody sees the ability to get some money doing something that may be ethically questionable. So all over Africa, I see Chinese crews building roads and Chinese are buying land, not only in Africa, they're buying land in Eastern Europe. They're buying land everywhere because they're aware, as Lester Brown put in his book, Who Will Feed China, that their own water table is sinking about a meter a year, and they're going to run out of water and they won't be able to feed the Chinese population, which despite their low birth rate is still growing slightly. Um, and it's going to take a long time for it to shrink down. So um, they see the opportunity to work deals in places like Africa where they build super highways and take land. And then when they need food, they can ship the land from Africa to China. And the people in Africa who grow it may end up starving. So it's, and I'm not just saying it's Chinese. Certainly this is a lot. That's an old playbook. Yeah. (laughs) There are a lot of countries playing this game and a lot of wealthy people playing this game. So yeah, I think for countries to shake off this interdependency um, that puts them on the hamster wheel, as you put it, uh, is pretty difficult, uh, particularly when the average citizens are living in systems with oligarchs who run everything and call the shots and make money uh, quite well by doing what I've just described, while the average citizen has very little say, and if they protest, they get shot in the streets. So indeed, uh, this I, I've witnessed this in this country and in other countries where people are not happy with what's going on politically, but when they try to protest or try to change the outcome of an election, uh, they get stopped. So, you know, there's, I guess there's, um, there's good biology that shows that about 99% of our genetic makeup is identical to chimpanzees. The sad part is while chimpanzees fight all the time, we have much um, more powerful weapons. And so when we fight all the time, it causes much more 
catastrophic effects. One of my favorite little factoids is that we also share the same amount of uh, identical genetic material with bonobo monkeys or bonobos. I can never, I never know which way to pronounce it. And they are these like, you know, they're essentially the hippies of yep. the primate crowd, you know, sort of living in matriarchal bands. It's yep. There's no sort of hierarchy. It's uh, very polyamorous as well. Yep. Um, and they live fairly peaceably together. Well, and so, yeah, bonobos, I mean, when they have... Stress mm-hmm. in a in a group, they make love, and the stress goes away. So, yeah. you know, why couldn't humans model their behavior after that? Well, I mean, I do remember somebody once saying to me, "Like, imagine, imagine if Darwin had stumbled across the bonobo first. Yeah, you know, perhaps our social fabric would be different. Perhaps we wouldn't have this like built-in narrative that human behavior is fundamentally violent because, you know, those guys aren't. It's very true. We. And and they are endangered. I know the head of the Bonobo Preservation Society, and they're a fascinating animal. So people who uh, want to travel in uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo should go visit them. They're, they are really amazing animals. Mm. Oh, wonderful. Um, before we move into the Population Media Center and the work that you've been doing with that, um, can you just explain why, um, you know, if the sort of, if some researchers are saying that exponential population uh, growth is very bad for our ecological footprint, given we were at 2 billion people just 100 years ago and only 1 billion 200 years ago, um, and given this research that there's this demographic dividend that smaller families lead to economic growth, why do we have uh, Western leaders and tech oligarchs around the world frantically sounding the alarm about our population declining and the need to increase birth rates? I wish I knew the total answer to that. I think the cynic in me says that some people make money from population growth. Uh, so, in fact, in any malfunctioning system, which this certainly is, somebody can thrive. Uh, people made money during the Great Depression because they saw what was coming and they sold stocks short. So, it doesn't mean it's good. But uh, the real estate development industry sees its lifeblood as being housing starts. And if you don't have more people, why build more houses? Now, certainly the building industry in general could do renovations of existing houses, but in places where populations have shrunk, you see abandoned buildings and cities gradually tearing down dilapidated houses and turning them in, turning neighborhoods into parkland, which is wonderful. But people who make their living in the construction industry think we need more and more people because that's how they make money. So that's one group. And certainly uh, I've seen, uh, for example, in a town in Australia where the people voted to stop growth and turn remaining land into parkland, the construction industry mobilized a huge effort and took over the town council and did away with that resolution. And they're building merrily away again. Mm -hmm. They threw a lot of money out and got their people elected. And now they are a pro-growth town. So um, certainly there are people who make money, people who are selling land and who are doing building see benefits in growth, but um, there are companies that sell um, 
small widgets and big widgets who think that if everybody uh, can buy one of their widgets, the more people, the better. And they may have a point when it comes to a place like the UK or the United States. If the UK or the United States adds a whole bunch of people uh, to their populations, it may mean that Amazon will make more sales in those countries. Um, and Tesla too. So, you know, certainly there are people who are, are running companies like that who may think that, well, I'll make more money if they're more consumers. But in fact, they're not looking to Ethiopia and Nigeria for massive sales because of the growing population. They may be looking to the elite in these countries for sales, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to what they're doing in developed countries. But I think that's part of where it's coming from. Part of the where it's coming from is total ignorance. And they don't know that they're condemning their own grandchildren to a uh, miserable existence, if any, uh, by pushing for endless growth. And they have no idea that endless growth is actually not possible because, as I said, they've never taken population biology or ecology, and they have no clue how dependent we are on limited resources, including the biosphere that makes the planet happen. It's interesting, isn't it? This idea that there's so many consumers available to these country, uh, to these corporations. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, if it comes to like buying crap off of Amazon, I'm very glad that they're not, you know, rolling out these massive campaigns in order to increase their consumer base. But they would have to, you know, the 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 quality of life or the quality of like income, access to income would have to increase in those nations. And those nations are typically where raw materials are extracted. Right. And so to increase the material well-being of those uh, people so that they can actively participate in the consumer economy, the profit margin of from extracting those raw materials would also decrease quite significantly. And so it seems better to roll out marketing campaigns that are focused on increasing the population in existing nations rather than lifting other people out of poverty. Yeah, um, mm. exactly. I think also people for all of humanity have celebrated growth. And I've never known a politician who ran on the platform of stopping economic growth. And they, if they did right now, they'd have trouble getting elected. So certainly before World War II, before vaccination programs and uh, public health efforts that led to the dramatic drop in infant and child mortality rates that led to growth in the human population at such a rapid rate, um, back when we were at 1 billion, having, particularly in, in places like Ethiopia, having 10 children may have been quite adaptive because eight of them would die on the way to adulthood. So if you wanted to replace yourself, you needed to have a large family. And so people celebrated fertility and they celebrated the mother of the year, not one who chose to have one foster child, but one who who had 10 children. So, you know, this has been built into all, I would say all of the cultures of the world. And so the idea of bigger is better has existed for all of humanity, and it's become particularly maladapted now that we have vaccination programs and public health measures that allow 90% to 95% of 
all children born to survive to adulthood and reproduce. Um, and this, I think a lot of economists have not caught up with that either, but, but certainly, um, the, the idea of growth in the economy is quite alluring if you don't realize that that may not mean you will live better. Uh, if the growth in the economy is all going to Elon Musk and you're actually living worse, it might not sound like such a great deal and you might not vote for that politician, but all they're talking about is gross national product. They're not talking about income per capita and income per capita is the real measure of human welfare, not gross national product. So. Oh, hang on. That's no, that's a very big oversimplification, surely. Well, uh, human well, you know, we don't think, I personally don't think of the Kardashians oh, as having a high welfare despite I'm, their huge income per capita. I'm leaving out, and I'm leaving out the happiness index of Bhutan. Yes. That. But what, I'm, what I should have said is income per capita is a much better measure of human welfare than gross national product. Um, so if, and the median income is, um, more important than the average income. It's the average is going up because of billionaires earning more and more and more and everybody else earning less. Uh, the welfare of the people is not going up economically. Now, obviously, there are a lot of other things, as you point out very rightly. Uh, and whether the Kardashians ever read poetry, I do not know. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that economists have sold politicians on the idea that Bigger economies are the only way. And part of it also has to do with mm, the system of borrowing and paying back debts that rely on ever bigger basis of the economy to pay back those debts. So a lot of the whole economic system is built on liver. And if you suddenly uh, have a shrinkage of the system, a lot of bills will come due that people don't have a way to pay. So, you know, getting off of this uh, Ponzi scheme is not necessarily going to be easy or painless. I think it will cause a lot of disruption, but we must move to a system that's not a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, it's interesting that there's a lot of talk around debt cancellation right now, even amongst the mainstream, and it tends to focus around, you know, like student debt, for example. But there is this awareness of like the 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 system <laughs> is sort of been built. It, the system is being revealed as what it truly exists for, which is to flood wealth to the top. And the fact that people are calling out for student debt cancellation, I think, is a wonderful thing because at the same time, there is this movement of developing nations being like, there's just no way that we're going to get through this if we are hobbled with this monstrous debt that increases every year and our economies aren't allowed to develop because of it. It's a, yeah, an interesting, I need to get somebody on actually to interview about this in more detail. Yeah. Well, you know, the country where I live, the United States, the uh, one political party is in favor of greater uh, reduction in taxes for the very wealthy and stopping any student debt cancellation. So there you have it. They just say, well, who are, who are my donors? Well, it's not the students. Exactly. Let's get into Population Media Center because all right. you are all doing fascinating things. So you've essentially sort of established that the, um, and I've got it written down here, that population, you know, and sort of desired family size is, is typically cultural. 
And I wrote down this interesting fact that the lack of access to contraception is cited as a reason uh, for non-use and only 1% Correct. of non-users. So less More than, or less. less most, less. most countries, it's down around uh, 0.2% uh, who cite lack of access. So uh, here in Kenya, with very few exceptions, maybe in the middle of the Maasai Mara, I would not find a contraceptive. But if if I'm living in uh, any major town or minor town in Kenya, I can find contraceptives at kiosks almost anywhere. And when you look at the demographic and health surveys, uh, for Sub-Saharan Africa, 95 to 99% of married men and married women know about contraception, know where it's available. They're not using it for other reasons. And the reasons they give when they're asked in the demographic and health surveys are, well, number one, they want more children. So desired larger family size is the top reason for non-use. And that's uh, about 600 million people, men and women who are not using contraception because uh, they want more children. And part of that is based on what we were just talking about, the long tradition of desired large family size. And the equating of that with virility, which indeed was valued in all of human history up until the present time. Um, and in West Africa, uh, desired fertility is above actual fertility. So if you're in Nigeria, fertility rate of about five. Uh, women, when asked how many they think is ideal, want seven, men want nine. And men are making a lot of the decisions in those families. In Niger, the average woman during her reproductive years has seven, over seven children, close to 7.6 children per woman in a country that's running out of water. And uh, women want 9.5, men want 13, as they oh, do wow. in Chad. So, you know, desired large family size is critical. And Charles Westhoff, a Princeton demographer, who's a real expert on Sub-Saharan Africa, has written that, in fact, fertility rate in Sub-Saharan Africa tracks within about one child of actual desired family size. So... If you want to see fertility rate come down, changing what people think is ideal is the first step. Second, among the roughly 500 million men and women, or 200 and some 250 million women, which is the way, it, way it's often uh, couched in papers on this subject, who are not using contraception and don't want a pregnancy, who are labeled as having an unmet need for contraception, not that they know it, but that somebody thinks because they don't want a pregnancy and they're not using a contraceptive, they have a need for something that would allow them to avoid a pregnancy. The reasons they give for non-use are, number one, they've heard it's dangerous. You can go to Catholic church here in Nairobi and hear that condoms will give you AIDS. And Good. that... God. Yes, and that the IUD will migrate up and stop your heart from beating. And you're much better off to have unprotected sex than to use a condom. So there's criminal misinformation being given out by zealots. Second, there's the rumor mill. So lack of adequate counseling. People try an IUD and they have uh, 
heavy bleeding for a month and they think they're hemorrhaging and nobody told them this would happen. So they have it removed and they tell 10 friends. So fear of health effects uh, is a leading reason in many countries. Opposition by religion, by male partner in particular, um, and um, personal opposition to the idea of planning a family uh, is a leading cause in many countries. So in Nigeria, that's the number one reason. And it's tied into religious beliefs that somehow planning a family is not up to individuals. This is up to God. Uh, I remember when one of the demographic and health surveys in Pakistan came out, 38% of the non-users of contraception gave as their reason, the number of children I have is up to God. So why use a method that doesn't work, like a contraceptive, that might cause your heart to stop beating when God is determining how many children you're going to have? So unless you can overcome the misinformation about safety and effectiveness and change opposition and make men realize that if their wife uses a contraceptive, it doesn't mean they're going to be sleeping around the neighborhood like they would, um, then, you know, we, we can't get people to start planning families until they, they realize, oh, actually, I'm going to have a happier, healthier, and wealthier family life if we do this. And if we don't start having a baby every year, we maybe have two or three, we space them out three years apart, that will be much better off. But if they don't know that and they've heard all these rumors and misinformation and religious opposition, they, they just give up on it and say, nope, that's not for me. So it's, it's a big problem that requires information to change it. There's, there's no pill for misinformation. And the only way to counter it, and it's becoming increasingly a problem uh, with the spread of the internet, is to have accurate information in a palatable form. So if I told your audience that they could dial into a website and listen to uh, an esteemed PhD give a lecture about which methods of contraception work most effectively, you'd probably have zero uptake. <laughs> but if people are talking to their neighbor and the neighbor tar starts telling them a story, they might listen. So going back to one of the first such stories in a program produced by a man named Miguel Sabido of Mexico. Sorry, but, but just to clarify, Population Media Center is creating radio novellas and telenovelas, like mainstream entertainment to kind of Trojan horse these messages to a population as a form of education. Thank you for giving that pitch. In fact, Trojan mm -hmm. horse is somewhat inaccurate. We're quite evident uh, in our programming of who's producing the program and what it's about. And the audience right. doesn't mind because they're not being bored. So we're not trying to manipulate them into wanting smaller families. We're showing them positive, negative, and transitional behaviors and the consequences, the realistic consequences of each. So Marta and Jesus in this program created by Miguel Sabido on Televisa in 1967-68 were struggling to keep their marriage together. And Marta did not want to repeat what her parents had done. She grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Her parents had 10 children. They lived in poverty. They fought all the time. 
And she saw many of their friends falling into the same trap. And so, and Hastings was lovable, if slightly macho. But at any rate, Marta says, look, I don't want to have another baby. We have two children. That's enough. So she separates their beds. And then someone tells her about the rhythm method, periodic abstinence. And she presents the calendar of the month at the kitchen table to her husband. And she says, you know, this week is X'd out. And that's the week we have to be disciplined. But we're in this week. So if you'd like to go dancing tonight, we can. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. So, Madam Attorney, so they go off dancing and they get carried away and the audience knows what follows. And then a week later, Jesus comes up to her and puts his arms around her and says, it was so nice dancing last week. Can we do that again? And she says, Jesus, this is the week we have to be disciplined. You know what happens when we go dancing. <laughs> I thought you would have forgotten about this discipline by now. And she said, no, I'm very serious about this. And you said you agreed. This is going to determine the future of our family. And he said, you can have your discipline. And he walked out on her. So then she goes to her aunt. And if you're writing a telenovela, you always need an aunt character. <clears throat> so the aunt says, in fact, there's something in Mexico that started in 1973 that you can do medically that will allow you to determine how many children you're going to have. You should go see a doctor with Jesus. It took some doing because Jesus said, neither of us are sick. Why are we going to see a doctor? But she finally persuaded him. They sit in front of a doctor or more accurately, an actor in a white lab coat. And on primetime television, with almost a third of the nation's viewers watching, he describes all the methods of family planning. They adopt an IUD. They're at a Mexfam clinic, the Planned Parenthood clinic, an affiliate of Mexico, and they adopt an IUD. And on the steps of the clinic afterwards, she says, Jesus, you have no excuse not to love me for the rest of your life. And Jesus said, and it's so easy. We can go dancing every night. So there you have it. What appeals to men and women in relationships. And um, Sabino captured this. And there was an immediate 33% increase in the sale of contraceptives in pharmacies. Uh, and I'm oh, sorry, a 33% increase in clinic attendance at Mexfam clinics, a 23% increase in the sale of contraceptives in pharmacies. And Sabido also role modeled interpersonal communication, particularly this system of promotores, the promoters of family planning that Mexico has specialized in using and had characters uh, who were benefiting from family planning use, talking to characters who hadn't discovered the benefits to persuade them and ran a unique toll-free number people could call to sign up as volunteer promoters. And 3,000 people called that number and signed up. So a colleague of mine, a man named David Poindexter, had been on a trip to Mexico during the time this was being broadcast, and he met with Sabido and came back and told us about it. And we all sort of laughed, telenovelas, who would do anything like that on a serious subject like population? And then we saw the data, and then he persuaded the owner of Televisa to have Sabido do four more such programs dealing with related subjects like teenage pregnancy prevention. And by the time all five had played in the late 70s and early 80s, 
Mexico had achieved the most dramatic decline in fertility rate of any developing country in the 20th century up until that time. Wow. And earned uh, the UN Population Prize to Mexico by UNFPA in 1986. So Sabido, in the meantime, traveled with my colleague, David Poindexter, to meet Indira Gandhi. And they said, you know, you're using coercion to have people be sterilized when you can persuade them with role modeling through characters. And she said, okay, well, I'll authorize the Indian Television Authority, which has the name Dordarshan, to do a program on this subject, which she did before she died. And then a man named Manor Shyam Joshi sat down single-handedly, which is not a good idea if you're hiring a writing team, and wrote what became an epic in Indian television history. It changed television forever, and India turned it into a commercial entity. And hum log, meaning we people, broadcast for over two years in the mid-80s, and everybody knows it. In the, maybe 10 years ago, I was in the backseat of a taxi driven by a middle-aged Indian gentleman in Washington, D.C., and I, I had looked at him, and I thought, I'm Bet he knows this program. So I said uh, to the driver, where were you in the mid-1980s? And he said, New Delhi. And I said, did you ever see a program or hear of a program called Humlog? And he said, sir, you know about Humlog? And I said, yes, some friends of mine had something to do with that program going on Indian television. For the remainder of the taxi ride, he told me episode by episode what the characters had done, but he had learned from them. So what that drove home is what I learned after flying to New York on September 11th, 2001, which is emotional involvement enhances memory. So when I witnessed in New York, I landed before the attack on the World Trade Center and witnessed it. And what I witnessed is always going to be engraved in my brain because of the emotion attached to it. the same thing with uh, a lot of other traumatic events one can go through. Emotional involvement enhances memory. So the difficulty we have in a lot of schools is we say, well, memorize these principles of physics and then try to remember them until the final exam. But unless you can find a way to emotionally wrap yourself around that information, it's hard to retain it. Uh, whereas melodrama, a highly emotional format with good and evil characters battling over issues, and in the Subito formulation, middle-of-the-road characters representing segments of the audience sorting out conflicting advice from positive and negative characters, the emotional involvement in those characters' lives makes it highly memorable. So people retain for a lifetime what they learn from these programs. And we and get... How many... So, and how many countries are you now operating in? Uh, we're in about a dozen at the moment, uh, total, including programs we've produced on MTV Latin America and Televisa that have played throughout Latin America. Um, we have done programs in 57 countries and reached about 500 million people. And wow. in many countries, these are the top rated shows on the air. So particularly in the world of radio uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, where radio is still the dominant medium in most countries and where government broadcasting is still dominant, like Radio Ethiopia, you can capture close to half the population. 
What we do in many countries is uh, syndicate the program across government and private um, stations. Um, And, you know, we can see, like in Ethiopia with the nine programs we've done, we've pulled in about 46% of the population through these programs. And What do you mean pulled them in? As audience, regular audience. In Sierra Leone, 50% reported listening at least weekly to what was a twice a week program. In Northern Nigeria, 67% reported listening at least weekly. And, and what's been their impact, that impact on population rates? In, in going through, the, through those three countries, our first program in Ethiopia, fertility dropped by a full child during that first program. It was a two and a quarter year show. Wow. Among the 45% of women who were listening, contraceptive use tripled from 14% to 40%, whereas among non-listeners, it went up marginally. The increase among listeners was two and a half times what it was among non-listeners. So what happened with non-listeners was two things. One, there are other factors causing people to take up use of contraception. And two, it is diffusion of ideas, as Everett Rogers put in his book, Diffusion of Innovation. So somebody who's listening to the program may talk to a non-listener and they decide to use family planning. So some of that may have happened in Ethiopia as well. In uh, Sierra Leone, at clinics across the country asking new clients what had motivated their visit. 50% of them named our program Sally Wansai by name. In northern Nigeria, 11 clinics asked new clients what motivated the visit. Uh, 67% named our program um, as the primary factor that brought them to the clinic for family planning. And so we said, okay, Extrapolating that across all the new users in the broadcast area, how many new users did we stimulate and what was the cost of the entire effort per user? So cost per attributable behavior change. And we took, in that case, the writing, acting, production, and primetime broadcast of 208 episodes, which isn't totally cheap. If you want to do a good job, it has to be better than what's on the air. And uh, survey research across the four states where the program was broadcast before and after, plus clinic intake research, asking new clients why they came. So all the costs of the research divided that by the number of people who adopted family planning and attributed it to the program, and it came out to 30 cent U.S. What? No more cost-effective strategy on the planet for getting people to understand the benefits of family planning. So wow. the reason we're doing it is it's far more effective, cost-effective than brochures and billboards and lectures on the air and anything else because you can attract such a huge audience and they fall in love with the characters. They're writing us letters saying, I named my baby daughter after this character and I hope she'll grow up to be as wonderful as you are. And oh. which was what somebody in a market told are the actress who played for Kurta in our Ethiopian serial drama. And we, another Ethiopian story that gets me out of bed every morning is we got among the 25,000 letters we got in response to that first program alone um, was one from Oromia, Ethiopia, saying, thank you for dealing with the issue of marriage by abduction. 
our own daughter was abducted on her way to school at age 14 and ended up married as a result because they want them to marry the rapist to save the family name. So, you know, this is a practice in many countries, believe it or not. Even Kyrgyzstan, we've addressed this issue. So she said, uh, we have been afraid to send our 12-year-old girls to school for fear the same thing would happen to them. When your program addressed this issue through the character Wu Balam, our entire village, most of whom were listening, came together and we agreed to enforce the law against marriage by abduction, which we had not realized existed. And now it's safe for our 12-year-old girls to go to school. Thank you. And please keep the program on the air. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. So, you know, when you realize you're whether their economic welfare improved or not, the lives of those girls by being educated uh, is dramatically improved. Everybody says, girls' education, girls' education. Of course, but there are barriers to that that exist in reality in places like Ethiopia that are critical to overcome. Jane Goodall did a wonderful thing in Uganda where we've done a couple of programs. She said, in the areas where the chimpanzees are that she was studying, the number one cause of loss of habitat for the chimpanzees is expanding human population. And what is happening in Ugandan schools is girls are reaching puberty and missing a week, a month of school because they can't go to school where they're bleeding. So she said, let's give them sanitary equipment so they can continue in school. And so they're doing that, and it's contributing to slowing population growth because what was happening was after a girl misses several weeks of school and is, you know, for a whole year is months and months behind, they drop out, they get married, they start having babies. So in yeah. like, keeping them in school is critically important and doing everything we can to allow girls to overcome all the barriers that exist from bathroom facilities to sanitary equipment to stopping rape of girls on their way to and from school uh, to stopping violence uh, and bullying against girls in school is critically important. Tell me, Bill, you've seen these fantastic behavioral changes, you know, in those, um, in the two years of that Ethiopian program, you know, the fertility rate dropped by one full child uh, per family or per woman. Is that behavior change sustained even when your programs go off the air? Uh, yes. Now, uh, the goal is not to have them go off the air for a couple of reasons. One is if you have a program that is countering uh, what has been the cultural norm, it takes some time. Yeah. And we don't expect the health indicators of Norway or Ethiopia to reach those of Norway, I mean, of Nigeria or Ethiopia to reach those of Norway in a two-year period. It's going to yeah. take time. It's going to take 20 years to get these countries through this transition. So our goal is to stay on the air, ever present in those countries as we move people from A to C to F to H, F, because we're not going to go from A to Z in two years. Um, and second, um, there have been cases where programming has stopped 
and where we've looked at, well, what happened to the fertility rate? What happened to contraceptive prevalence? And it has not gone back down in the case of prevalence or back up in the case of fertility rate. It has stayed at the new level. So this, in fact, happened in Mexico during the five Sabido style program. Fertility rate came down dramatically. Then the owner of Televisa said to Sabido, do more commercially focused programs. So they stopped doing ones dealing with family planning. And the fertility rate did not go back up, but it stayed at the new lower level. So I think while there's no perfect research showing that these changes are permanent, all the evidence we have is um, somebody is convinced by one of these programs that they want to space and limit families childbearing, um, mm-hmm. that they stay that way, they stay convinced. You know, obviously if there's a massive counter campaign that can change, but to date we haven't seen uh, reversals. That is just amazing. Gosh, what a wonderful thing <laughs> to do. I just, the, the, all of it makes sense. I mean, even from in terms of a business model, like this is, you think about the amount of NGOs that have to raise funds and this is, this is media, this is entertainment. It's sort of, you know, self-funding, self-propagating. Congratulations, what an amazing achievement. Um, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? I would suggest there are many, by the way. I mm-hmm. thought about this uh, for some time and I would suggest Kathleen Moldengard would be a good person for you to platform. She is president of the Population Institute. Uh, I chair that board. That's where I started my career. Uh, The Institute works on policy and advocacy issues, and particularly on things like funding for family planning assistance by the U.S. government. And it works uh, in analysis, so looking at the Sahel, at the impact of the status of girls on uh, the political instability of the Sahelian region. And, you know, it's hard to um, make that leap of what does the status of girls have to do with political instability and the rights of jihadists. But in fact, there are now people at the CIA who see this totally connected. Uh, because it is the low status of women and girls leading to massive poverty, loss of access to food and water, et cetera, et cetera, lack of growth in the economy, no jobs, that is leading to desperation. So I think she would be a very interesting person to you. Brilliant. Bill, thank you so much for your time. This was just fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.